All right, well, good morning to everyone and welcome to The Well here at STSA as we begin this brand new series called Blind Faith. One of the things we always say here about The Well is we are an ordinary place where extraordinary stuff happens. And I believe that is especially true for this series because this is one of those series, like I got to let you know, we plan out the entire year, like the schedule for the entire year. And this is the one that I've kind of had in my uh, vision and kind of in my mind on the horizon for so long because I'm super duper excited about this series because we're going to talk about when you boil Christianity down to its core, we're going to talk about one of the most fundamental elements in Christianity. And, uh, and if Christianity is the most important thing in our lives, we're talking about one of the most important things in Christianity, which is faith. And the question that I'm going to ask here today and hopefully answer over the course of these next few minutes that we have together and then give you more examples over the coming weeks is what is faith? Like if I asked you, do you have faith? All of you would raise your hand for the most part. If not, you're probably in the wrong room. Okay, today, but that's okay. Okay, so most of you would say, if I have faith, yeah, I have faith. You believe? Oh, yeah, I believe. And then I asked you to define that. What is faith? How do I know if I have it? How do I know what it looks like? Like, I know what it looks like when I don't have it, but how do I know if I'm doing it right? Where do I get more if I'm struggling? Like, how many of us have ever said, if we're honest, probably all of us have said this at some point in time, I wish I had more faith. You ever said that? I wish I just believed more. I wish I had stronger faith. I wish I didn't struggle so much with believing and with my faith. Well, my question is, what does that mean? What are you really asking for? Like, what is faith? Is faith? some magical feeling on the inside? Is faith just some like hocus pocus, like I said earlier, some magic fairy dust that allows us to believe and, and get through hard times and just kind of, some people got it and some people don't. So these people have faith, lucky them, they can go through disasters and layoffs and troubles and they have like some kind of ability to get through that, whereas the other people who don't have it stinks to be you. Is faith, sometimes we treat like faith like science fiction, like faith is this, is this thing that I have that allows me to enter into new worlds and new galaxies of flying unicorns, you know what I mean? And, and, and pots of gold at the end of every rainbow. Is that what faith is? Or is faith, I'm sure some of you have heard this, some of you may have even said this, is faith something that just religious people made up to explain things that can't be explained? We don't know the answer to that. Oh yeah, that's because you don't have faith. No, we don't know where that came from. Oh yeah, but if you had faith, you would. Is faith something that we just made up? Consider the following statement in any area of life outside of the church. Okay, we'll talk about what it means like in religion a bit, but outside of church, consider the following statement. If someone were to come to you and say, I wish I had your faith. I wish I believed like you believe. What does that statement mean? Outside of church. Take it in any other context. I wish I had your faith in flying reindeer. I wish I had your faith in talking snowmen. I wish I had your faith in that old guy who lives down the street who looks like Santa. I wish I had your faith that that really is Santa Claus. Is someone saying to you, I wish I had your faith is the nicest possible way of saying, I think you're insane. I think you believe in things that don't really exist, but somehow it makes you feel good and it makes you kind of get through the hard days. So I kind of envy you that. Is that what faith is? An irrational, illogical belief and things that don't really exist? Is faith a bridge from reality? Like here we are in reality, and then there's this world of fiction, and faith is this bridge. So those who have faith can walk across this and live 
in La La Land, okay, and enjoy their time right here where everything is good and everything is happy and our baseball team wins and our football team is run properly. And like, can people who have this thing called faith just always, everything is good for them? I think a lot of times when we say faith, again, outside of religion, outside of Christianity, what someone is saying there is that you have faith. I wish I had that faith. You have the capability to believe in things that are unreal and it makes you happy. So I wish I had that same thing. Well, my question to you is, is that the faith that Jesus is talking about? Like Jesus says, believe in me. You believe in my father, believe also in me. Is that what Jesus is talking about? The hocus pocus belief, the science fiction, the believing in flying unicorns? St. Paul says that we walk by faith. St. Paul says that for us, that we don't walk by sight, we walk by faith. We read in our Christian tradition, our history, that people died for the faith. But what was the faith that they died for? Just science fiction? Just wishful thinking? Just kind of optimism? Or is there something more to it? Unfortunately for many of us, probably a lot of us grew up being taught, and probably a lot of us have even said these things. We were taught that if you don't believe, that's a problem with you, that you're doing something wrong, and you just got to believe. You just got to believe. Well, I'm struggling to believe. You just got to have faith. You just got to take a step of faith. You just got to believe. And we're taught to believe that there's something wrong with us. And most probably at some point in time, if this is the way you grew up, something bad happened and you were told that it's because you lacked faith that that happened. Something bad happened and then somebody said, well, if you had faith, that wouldn't have happened. Or if you had faith, you would have ended up in that condition. If you believed, if you just believed, man, just believe. Is that what faith is? The ability to believe in unreal things. Is that even, let me ask you another question. Is that even possible? Again, take aside Christianity. Take any other aspect of, the, take any other way to use the word faith in life. Is it possible to have more faith? Like either you believe or you don't believe. I wish I had more faith in, in UFOs. I wish I had more faith. Like, I'm gonna pray that I can believe in them. I wish I had more faith that Elvis truly is alive. Like, is it even possible to manufacture faith? Like, either you believe or you don't believe. So I kind of believe the same thing is true when it comes to church and Christianity. I don't think that faith in life should be defined differently than faith here in the church. I believe that in life, you acquire faith based on one of two things. There's two reasons why. If you believe in anything, you believe in it because of one of two things. You believe in UFOs, you believe in Elvis, you believe in reindeer, you believe in Santa, whatever it is, for one of two reasons. Either experience or trust. Either experience or trust. Said it this way. We believe based on what we experience or who we trust. Let me explain that statement. Let's take science. Gravity, for example. You believe in gravity. And the reason you believe in gravity, there's two ways to believe. The first way is you go to the top of a building and you say, I believe I can fly. I say, I believe in gravity. You jump and we will find out who's right and who's wrong. You can experience gravity firsthand and therefore discover that, you know what? This gravity thing, man, that's the real deal. Like the cape doesn't do me any good. Like no matter how high, like gravity is real. Or there's a smarter way to believe in gravity. When our fourth grade science teacher told us there's a thing called gravity, we said, okay. Ms. Johnson said there's gravity, there's gravity. So you believe, not because you experienced it, but because you trusted in the person who was teaching you. 
You went to math class. They gave you your times tables. 12 times one is 12. 12 times two is 24. 12 times three is 36. And they told you to memorize it. How many people went home, got a whole bunch of apples, okay, or oranges and took, okay, if really, if I had four groups of 12, yeah, it is 48, checks out. No, you took it based on the person that you trusted in front of you when you were taught how to drive. Taught how to drive driver's ed, you know, with Mr. Schultz in, in 10th grade, still remember it. He said, you push, he was very much making sure that we didn't push the wrong button, okay, the gas and the brake. That was like his big thing. I guess, I don't know, whatever experiences he had in driver's ed, but people pushed the wrong one. So he said, you push this one, he kept telling us, you push this one, you're gonna drive through a wall. You push this one, you're gonna drive, like kept telling us that. So I could say, who told you I wanna experience that myself? And I can go to a wall and try it myself, or I say, you know what, Mr. Schultz said, the one on the, the, the right makes you go, the one on the left makes you stop. I took his word for it because I trusted in him. I don't believe there should be any difference inside the church. Let me say it another way. Faith is not the same thing as hope. What's the difference between faith and hope? We sometimes get it confused. Faith and hope are not the same thing. Faith, let's say I say this, I'll say a sentence, you tell me, is this faith or is this hope? I have faith that my husband will remember my birthday. Hope is wishful thinking, which is not bad. I'm not, I'm not against it. Being optimistic, wishful thinking, like hope is an important part of our Christian life. But faith is different. Faith is based on evidence, either I, my own experience or someone that I trust. I have faith that my husband will remember my birthday. Okay, let me ask you a question. Did he remember your birthday last year? No. The year before? No. Did he remember his own birthday? Does he know what he had for lunch? Like, like does your husband remember anything? No. Okay, that's great. That's not faith. That's hope. That's blind optimism. And again, I'm not against them. Hope is an important part of, of, of our Christian walk. I'm saying we do need to believe in things that we have no evidence for, and we do need to see it that way. I'm not against that. But all I'm saying is that's not faith. Faith is, I believe my husband will remember my birthday because he remembered it last year. And every year he plans something fun. Two years ago, he planned a trip to Europe. The year before, he planned a cruise around the whatever. The year before, he planned a night of binge-watching Father Anthony's sermons. That was the best night of my life. That's not hope. That's not blind. That's not, you gotta believe. You gotta believe. That's evidence. That's experience. And I think that if you go to the apostles, go to people like St. Peter, first one to declare his faith and believe. Say, hey, Peter, tell me the real deal. Why you believe? Do you think he'd say, you just got to believe, man. You just got to have faith, man. If you went to St. James, so what's what you believe in Jesus? You believe he's the son of God. None of these other people do. Why do you? You have some magical power that they don't have. Where can I get this magical power? They can look at you like you're crazy. Like you got three eyes. I don't believe in magical power. I believe and he would give you the reason why he believed. St. John, the beloved, tells us why it is that he believed. In his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, listen to the words that St. John uses here to talk about why he believes and why we should believe too. Listen to the words. I highlighted some of them. Listen carefully and try to understand what he's saying. That which was from the beginning, which we have, which we have, when we get to highlight words, say it with me, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. He's talking about something we saw, something we heard, something we looked at, something we touched. And he goes on, the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which is with the father and was manifested to us. 
That which we have, and he says it again, that which we have seen, that which we have heard, we declare to you. He's not saying just believe, just take it by faith. He's saying, I'm telling you what I seen and I'm telling you what I heard. We declare to you that you also may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. What St. John is saying right here is, I'm not making stuff up. I didn't come up with this stuff. This isn't magic fairy dust. This isn't science fiction. I'm telling you that the word was made flesh. The logos that God became man. And in, in, in his gospel, he writes, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And dwelt among us. You know what us is? Like you can take that in two ways. The, the word dwelt among us, meaning God dwelt among us as humanity. God dwelt in our midst. But he also means in a very personal way. God dwelt among me and, and, and James and Peter. And he was among us and we, we saw him. We heard him. We touched him. We ate with him. We walked with him. We laughed with him. We joked with him. He's saying the word was made flesh and he was in our midst. And I'm telling you, he's the real deal. He is the only begotten of the father. He is the light of God who was made flesh. And I don't even understand what that means. But I'm telling you, I saw it, I heard it, and you should believe, not just because you should believe, but you should believe because of what I saw, what I heard, and what I touched. Saying another way, I said this earlier for those who were here during the liturgy, Christianity is not beliefs. Christianity is not faith and faith and faith. Christianity is not just religion. Christianity is fact. Christianity is reality. And that reality is that God became man. And God became man to save man. That God at a point in time, that's what John is saying, that God entered, opened the books of history, opened the timeline of history, and he stepped down inside history. And he became man and dwelt among us. And we know that he became man. We'll talk about that in a second. And people witnessed it, and people saw it, and people wrote about it. And you should believe, not just for belief's sake, but because of the people who witnessed it firsthand. There's a Christian apologist, one of these guys who is, uh, goes in like uh, debates with atheists and things like that. His name is Frank Turek. You can find his videos on YouTube. He says something very nice. He says the reason people are so easily talked out of Christianity is because they were never talked into it in the first place. You get what he's saying there? The reason why so many kids go off to college, the first professor who questions their faith, they lose their faith. This is important for you parents who have kids. The reason why people lose faith, they're so easily talked out of it because they never talked into it. What they were talked into was just believe, man. You gotta take it. You have to have faith. No, 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 you gotta believe. You don't believe that what's wrong with you. You, you, you gotta believe. You gotta believe. And what he's saying, I agree with. As a lot of people are talked out of it because they never talked into it. So here's what we're gonna do in this series. A series called Blind Faith. What we are going to do in this series is we're going to take the gospel according to St. John. We are going to look specifically at six stories in that gospel, okay? There's seven of them, but the six weeks in the series, so we'll, we'll, we'll try to make it like that. The gospel according to St. John is not just a random account of Jesus' life. The goal of gospel of John is different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are written much earlier, closer to the actual life of Christ, and they were written to give an account of Jesus's life. And those are great. We need those. Those are called the synoptic gospels because they summarize the life of Christ. John's gospel is a little bit different. John's gospel is organized around seven signs, not miracles, signs. And I'll tell you why I say that. Around seven signs that Jesus did. 
And every one of those signs, what's the difference between a miracle and a sign? A miracle is a miracle, some supernatural act, but a sign, what St. John says, is pointing to something. And St. John, when he wrote his gospel, again, different than the others, St. John leaves out a lot of the details that Matthew, Mark, and Luke talked about. Like St. John doesn't talk about the birth of Christ. He didn't talk about that. He didn't talk about the baptism of Christ. He doesn't talk about even the, like the Last Supper isn't mentioned in John's account. But John talked about things that the others didn't because by the time of John, okay, think of those guys writing in like the, the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, somewhere around there. And think of John writing in the 90s, okay? Christ died in the 30s. So John is writing after those gospels have been in circulation. Everyone knew the stories. People lived those stories. John is writing in his old age at the very end to basically say, y'all have heard about Jesus. Y'all have heard about this man who Matthew, Mark, and Luke were telling you, this man is not a man. This man is actually God. Well, I want to fill in some of the blanks. And he's writing his gospel to complete the story, not to repeat the story. And he gives us in the very end of his gospel. You know how when you do like a, a science project, you have to give like a, what's it called? Like a thesis statement or a hypothesis statement or whatever. Like the purpose of my project is. John, what's the purpose of writing the gospel? He says it this, John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. He says, truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. I wrote about these seven. Why? That you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. He says it very clear up front. I'm writing this gospel. I'm gonna tell you about seven signs. I'm not gonna tell you the whole story because Jesus did so many other things, okay? Last Supper's important. I didn't talk about that because y'all know about that. I didn't talk about so many different things, but I'm gonna tell you these seven signs that Jesus did and I'm telling you for a purpose because each sign pointed. That's what a sign is. It says it's an arrow, it's pointing. It's pointing to something about who Jesus is, about his identity as the son of God, as the Messiah. Remember, the disciples, including John, didn't just, Jesus didn't come down and just say, I'm God and believe in me. That's not how it happened. If you read the story, you will see that the disciples would believe and then kind of doubt. And then they would kind of do well and then they kind of struggle. And Peter would say, you're the Christ, son of God. And then he would say, well, I'm not really sure. I don't know who the man is. And, and the disciples kind of went back and forth. They struggled with it. And what John is saying right here is, saying, if you struggle in your faith, like I get it, I struggle too. I struggle to accept how God could be man and how man could be God, like I get it. But then I saw these signs and I wanna share with you what I saw and each week we're gonna talk about one sign. I saw what I saw and I know what I saw and when I saw this, it changed everything. And now I'm asking you to believe in what I wrote, not just because I'm a good guy or a smart guy, but because I saw, I touched, I handled and that made all the difference in the whole wide world. That's actually why, if you notice, the gospel of John, how does John refer to himself in the gospel? Like he's part of a lot of the stories, but he never refers to himself by name. He refers to himself as who? The disciple that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved, the disciple that Jesus loved. Why John never wrote his name? Like it would say like, it didn't say Peter and John ran to the tomb to see that it was empty. It was Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved. Peter and the disciple whom Jesus loved, why? Our standard answer is because he was humble. Okay, he's humble, but then basically what you're saying is the other guys weren't humble, okay? The other guys were arrogant, whatever. Okay, I, I think it's more than just humble. I think what St. John was saying is he wanted the authority of his account not to be based on his position. Remember, by this time, John is, like I said, writing in the end of the 90s, okay? 
not the 1990s, the, just the 90s, okay? Just zero 90, okay? So he's writing at the end of the 90s. Peter had been martyred by this time. Paul, he had been, he'd been killed as well. James is gone. P all those guys are gone. Like all the original cast of characters, those guys have all gone. He's the last one standing. So because of that, you can imagine the clout that he had, okay? He was a bishop over the seven churches of Asia. So he had a very high position. So anything he said, people would be like, oh, because you said it, it must be true. But he didn't want that to be the authority of his gospel. He wanted the authority to be not who I am in my position, but I'm the disciple who Jesus loved, meaning I was the one who was close to him. I saw it. It was the eyewitness. There's a uh, Orthodox priest named Lord, Father Lawrence Farley. He's a Canadian priest who uh, has written books, written a book about the Gospel of John. He's on Ancient Faith Radio podcast. And he says this about, about this point. He says, when John says that Jesus loved him, He's not boasting that he was somehow the Lord's favorite. Rather, he is presenting his credentials as one who was especially close to Jesus. He was in a position to know things not known by others. Since he offers his gospel as a witness to the world, he offers himself in his capacity as an eyewitness insider. John writes his gospel and says, this isn't what I heard from others. This isn't secondhand. He stands in front of the judge and says, this is what I saw with my own eyes. I am the disciple who Jesus loved. I was always next to him. I heard stuff that other people didn't hear. I saw stuff. I was there. And I want the testimony not to be of John the apostle. Forget about John the apostle. I want you to know John the eyewitness who was there, who Jesus knew intimately and who knew Jesus intimately as well. Sound good? Sound like a fun series? Let's jump in. Let's start with the first sign. The first sign is the water turned into wine. That kind of rhymes. The first sign, the water turned to wine. Let's go. I have fun with this stuff. I hope you have fun with it too, okay? The water turned into wine, the favorite story of every bartender, every wedding planner, and every college student across America. Favorite story in the Bible is when Jesus went to a party, they were, they were running dry, and Jesus made it a real party because he turned the water into wine. Everyone's favorite story. It's a story. Again, John wrote his gospel so late in the 90s after so many people had knew the story. It's a story that maybe you never paid attention to this, that when John tells the story of the wedding of Cain of Galilee and how Jesus turned water into wine, it's a story that is so well known to his audience that if you pay attention, Jesus, or sorry, John actually never tells about the miracle. He never tells, like John like sets it up like this anticipation and this anxiety and oh no, there's a problem. And then he never gives the punchline because by then everyone knew exactly what had happened because it was so common information at that time. Let's jump into the story. We'll go verse by verse quickly and then we'll try to see what it means to each one of us. John chapter two, starting in verse one. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. St. Mary, mother of Jesus, plays like a special role. If you know the story, like she, we don't know exactly, either she was like a friend of the family or she was part of like the, the committee that to, to do the food or the drinks or whatever it may be. She had some kind of special place where she knew information before others. Like she's the first one who found out when they ran out of wine. We don't know exactly what her role was, but we knew, we know that she was somehow involved. John Mensinge. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Why he says, were they were invited to the wedding? Why he makes that point? Because again, eyewitness. I'm not telling you a story that I heard through the grapevine or someone posted it on the Twitter or there was an article on Huffington Post. I'm telling you about something that I was there with my own eyewitness. Verse three. 
And when they ran out of wine, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. This is kind of a strange thing. They ran out of wine. Well, let's understand the, the cultural context. The Jewish culture at the time in the first century was all about social norms and how you appeared in public and everything. Okay, you had to appear. There was, there was rules and regulations governing everything. And if you broke those social norms, you would be ostracized from society. And the way weddings worked back then was not like today, where it was like a, a one day or a one evening kind of an event. It was a week long event. And the way it would work is you invited everybody and everyone would come. And there was this expectation that the wine would be flowing freely. Because what fun is a, what fun is a wedding without any wine? Like it just makes no sense, right? Like you couldn't have fun at one of those. So the wine had to be running freely. And if people went to the wedding and there was no wine, that was a major, major, major societal faux pas. One that would get you ostracized because what happens when they run out? Of, you think people are going to stick around for a week if there's no wine? Heck no. Once the right wine runs out, that's the cue to everyone get back to home because again, what are you going to do without the wine? So people would leave when that happened. And as they left that party, what do you think they'd have to say about the family? What do you think they'd say about the bride and the groom? They would have nothing nice to say, only negative. And this would be like a cloud that would hang over both the family as well as the couple who was getting married. So that makes this statement, they ran out of wine, catastrophic. So here comes Virgin Mary, mother of God. And her first request that we read about in the scripture to her son, the son of God, the Messiah, the savior of the world is about wine. Strange request. Jesus didn't come to save weddings. She came to save the world. So why Virgin Mary comes here and talks about wine? Sometimes we ask, some people ask the question, did St. Mary know that Jesus was God? Did St. Mary know? Like at this time, it had not yet been revealed. Like none of the disciples knew yet. This is in the beginning. But did St. Mary know that Jesus was God? Absolutely. <laughs> Remember, absolutely. I, I don't even know how you could question it. Remember, she's a virgin. Raising her child. She's a virgin, raising a child. So therefore, you don't have to think like, this is not faith and faith, this is not faith. There's a virgin raising a baby. She knew he was God. And think about it another way. Do you think that the more time, no one spent more time with Jesus than St. Mary, obviously. Do you think the more time you spend with God, the more you'd believe in who he is or the less you'd believe? You think the more time you spend with him, those who struggle, with the faith, those who struggle to believe. I get it, I'm not, not, not judging you. But do you think that the more time you spend with him in his presence, do you think that's gonna reveal more truth or less truth? This is the first public sign that Jesus did, but we would be foolish to think this is the first time that Jesus showed his divinity to his mother. This is the first public sign. But again, his whole life was one big miracle. His, from, his, from his very conception, his birth, okay, his childhood was one big miracle. So for sure she knew. But the question then is, like why the first time we read about in the gospel, like she didn't say heal so-and-so, like someone is sick, heal him. Or there's a lost person, let's preach to them. Like she came in with the wedding and the wine, like the who cares kind of a thing. While this story may not make much sense to us, John, as John is now, like I said, about to die, writing at the end of his life, end of the first century, looking back, John said, you know what? It was so clear. 
Jesus' first sign was the perfect start. Better than a healing, better than a preaching, better than a casting out demon was the perfect sign for Jesus to begin his, pub, his ministry and reveal who he was. Let's read verse four. Jesus said to her, she asked for the wine. Jesus says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Woman. Husbands, don't try this at home. I don't want to hear anybody went home today, said to their wife, woman, and say, I was just quoting Jesus. Okay. I don't want to hear that because it's going to get me in a lot of trouble. When Jesus said to her, woman, I know in our context, it sounds so rude, but you can't judge ancient cultures by modern standards. Actually, when Jesus said to her, woman, it was actually wasn't rude at all. It was it was a little informal, like it was a little formal. So it wasn't like coat, it wasn't like mom, like it wasn't like that. It was, it, was, it was formal, but you can translate it better and say, madam. That's what he said to her, madam. Or someone translated, my lady. So it's formal for sure, but it's not rude. In fact, where else did Jesus call his mother woman? On the cross, where he was doing what? Consoling her. And he was comforting her. And he said, woman, behold your son. When he told okay, her to stay with John and John to take care of her. So he wasn't being rude. What he was doing was being formal. And, and why? You know, maybe because he was, maybe he was honoring her in public because this was a public conversation. So maybe he was giving her honor. We don't exactly know why, but we know that St. Mary was not offended in the least because Jesus basically says, what does your concern have to do with me, woman? My hour has not yet come. And her response is, she said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. That's a strange thing to say when someone says no. Jesus said no to the miracle. And her response is, whatever he says to you, do it. Now, what happened here? Let, 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 let's, let's, let's pause the story to see. Sometimes we look at this and we say, this is an example of the power of intercessory prayer. And the Virgin Mary and her power of intercession. Because she changed Jesus' mind. You'll read different things, and I'm not against that interpretation, okay? I'm not against. You'll read different commentaries, different people say different things. And for sure, St. Mary is the most powerful intercessor. This is not against intercession in any way. But I'm saying there might be something more to it than that. Again, Father Lawrence Farley writes it this way. He says, some suggest that this is an example of the powerful intercession of the mother of God. Though Jesus is reluctant to do the miracle, yet he is persuaded to do so by his mother. Though the Theotokos is indeed a powerful intercessory, that is not the meaning of the present story. Saying it another way, she didn't change Jesus's mind. It's not like Jesus was like, no, this is the wrong time. This is the wrong thing. And then St. Mary asked her, he said, okay. Jesus was not saying it that way. In fact, Jesus did say no to what she asked. She asked for a public miracle. And Jesus said, I'm not gonna do a public miracle. I'm gonna do a private sign. No one knew about this miracle as we'll read it as we, when we kind of get to the end. No one knew what happened. The guests didn't know what happened. The bride and the groom didn't know what happened. No one in the public knew what happened. It was a sign. It wasn't a miracle. Miracles, signs are different. Miracles are like random acts of kindness. Miracles are like just kind of showing off that I'm God. This was not a miracle. This was a sign and there's a big difference. This was a sign to his disciples to point to the fact, I am not a normal rabbi. It was the first sign that Jesus is not 
just a regular person. So why I like this, I kind of like believing that this is not a power, uh, uh, example of intercession. I kind of like, maybe you, you disagree with me, I like it that St. Mary came to Jesus and she said to him, Jesus, let's do this. Jesus said, no, we're going to do this. I like knowing that I'm not the only one who gets no to my prayers. I like knowing that even the mother of God came to Jesus and said, let's do this. And Jesus told her, I have a different plan. I have a better plan. And that's what makes her statement so profound. Because when Jesus said to her, I have a better plan, what did she say? Whatever he says, do it. And I think when she's saying that, she's not just saying it, remember she said that to the servants, she's not just saying it to those servants, she's saying it to these servants as well. To us who come to God and say, God, we have a great idea. And God says, no, we're actually gonna do this. And then she says to us, the servants of God, as the mother of God, she speaks with authority. She says to us, to every single one of us, whatever he says to you, do it. Trust that his plan is better than yours. Trust that it may not be exactly what you wanted, may not be how you drew it up, but trust that he's got a plan because he's not a normal rabbi. He's somebody special. Uh, Father Lawrence Farley goes on. Prior to this, listen to this. Prior to this, Jesus was under her authority as any dutiful son was under the authority of his mother and surviving parent. His mother first assumes that he will continue to be under her authority as he always was as a child. But the time for such submission is past. Now he is under the authority of only the father and Mary, like everyone else in Israel, is called to accept this and become his disciple. In other words, St. Mary, his whole life, mother, child, telling him, yes, mother. And now all of a sudden is the time that she is now becomes the disciple. And as a disciple, like I said, she tells us what you need to know. Trust in his wisdom, not your own. Trust in his goodness, not your own. Even if it wasn't exactly what you were planning, trust that he has something better. And I'm put a pin in that word better because we're gonna come back to that. Let's continue the story, verse six. Now there were set six, set there six water pots of stone according to the manner of purification of the Jews containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Again, notice the level of detail John is giving right here. Six pots, 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Why such detail? Why? Because what is his whole account based on that he is in? Eyewitness. Only eyewitnesses tell you details. He's saying, I was there, I saw it. There were these six water pots. Now, the thing with these six water pots, they're more than just jars that contain water. They were a symbol of something. He even says it right there. They were according to the manner of purification of the Jews. You know, in the Jewish, in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, the Jews had rules for everything. They had to wash a certain way before meals and everything was like prescribed. You had to wash a certain way. And these were the pots that were used for the washing. So look, not a miracle, a sign. Look at the sign. Jesus comes and his first public, or I'm sorry, his first sign is he takes something old, something that represents the old covenant, the old way, and he replaces it with something new. He takes the very thing that came to represent everything from Moses through the prophets. And what does he do with those? Look at the next verse. Jesus said, Fill the water pots with water and they filled them to the brim. He didn't come to destroy the water pots, destroy the old. He came to fulfill them. Jesus didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill the law. He didn't come to say those water pots, get those out of here. 
throw away that. We broke the old, now we're on. And no, 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 no. He comes, the entire law, he fills it. He fulfills it. Every jot, every tittle of the law, not one thing was left undone. Jesus fills it all. And it's a beautiful sign that the old enter Jesus, something new. Verse eight. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. Again, if you don't know the story, what are you thinking right now? Let's say you've never read the story. You're thinking like, oh no, they're gonna taste the water. Like there's no wine in the story. So far as Jesus said, take the pots, fill them with water. And now he says, take it to the master. So you're reading this. You're like, oh no, they're gonna, they're gonna discover the roost is up. Like, oh no. But notice John never tells us that the water is not water anymore. He just assumes that everyone knew it. Why? Because everyone knew the story. Look at the next verse. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine. Like, where's the punchline? Like, he skipped the punchline. He just kind of went to the end of the story and he just assumed that everybody knew. When the master of the feast had tasted the water that was made wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. The master of the feast, okay, would be like the, like the head waiter, so to speak. Kind of the one who's in charge of the, of the kitchen, the head butler. And he said to him, Every man at the beginning sets out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior. You have kept the good wine until now. What he says is, is I get it. Like, you usually start with the good wine, and then you bring out the weak stuff, because by then everyone's drunk, and no one can really taste anything, so that's, that's the normal way. But you, you started with something. You started with something that was good, not bad. The first was not bad. The first was good. You started with something good. And then now you've given me something better. Verse 11. This beginning of signs, not miracles. This beginning of signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Again, the purpose was a sign to get to that point of belief. After this, he went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days. John tells us that the end result of the sign is that many people, there's two things that John points to as a result of the sign. One is clear, one is not as clear, but you, it's in there. The first thing is that because of the sign, that many of his disciples believed. Why did they believe? Because of faith? Because just you just gotta take a step of faith? You gotta believe? You gotta take my word for it? You just gotta believe? They didn't believe for the sake of believe. They believed because they saw a sign. There was evidence. There was an experience that John now relates to us as an eyewitness. What's the second result? of this sign and this belief. What's the second result? Verse 12, strange verse. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. He says they went down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. Obviously, when it says brothers right here, okay, doesn't mean that Jesus had actual brothers. Okay, we, 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 Virgin Mary was ever virgin. so She never had any other children. But Jesus had, okay, you can take the word brother either as cousins or more likely what it was is half-brothers because most likely Joseph, okay, had children from other marriages prior to Virgin Mary. So when we say brothers, it doesn't mean brothers, brothers, okay? It means like half-brothers or cousins, whatever it may be. But who cares? Why, is this, why does this matter? What is the result of believing in Jesus? Is not just a personal faith in him, but is a communal faith and is an incorporation into the body of Christ, into the family of God, that you believe and the goal wasn't just believe and run off. The goal was believe 
And now when you believe, you're part of the family. That's why in another place, when Jesus was asked about your mother and your brothers and your sister, he's like, who's my mother, my sister? Who's my family? It's everyone who does the will of God is my mother, my sister, and my brothers. So this new thing, this sign pointed to Jesus coming to do a new thing. It's something to do with me, something to do with my relationship with the family of God. Let's review. John, simple fisherman, says to us, look, I'm not a smart guy, and I don't know much theology or any of that stuff. But I know what I saw, and I know what I heard, and I know what I witnessed. And I'm going to tell you about these seven signs. And my hope is that just like you believed your science teacher when she told you about gravity, just like you believed the driver's ed Mr. Schultz guy when he told you about the gas, just like you believed Ms. Johnson when she told you about the times tables, my hope is that when I tell you about what I saw, I experienced and I believed. And I hope now you would trust me because I was an eyewitness. And then I hope that you would believe. And then I hope that your belief leads you to your own experience as well. I'll say it this way. Experience leads to faith. Faith leads to my faith, which leads to my experience. John experienced something. Your science teacher experienced something. Your Mr. Schultz, like you, someone out there had some experience that led them to believe. And now they come to us and say, based on what you think of me, I'm asking you to believe as well. And my faith comes from their faith. But if I do my faith the right way, that will ultimately lead to my experience. John saw something. John shared something. I believe John. I have the faith. And therefore, that would lead me to my own experience as well. That's the way it worked in math class. That's the way it worked in science class. That's the way it worked in driver's ed. That's the way it worked with the Samaritan woman. For those who know the story in John chapter 4 about Jesus came to a woman and she didn't believe in him. But then she had this experience with him where he knew everything about her. So she believed. She went back to her town and she said, come see a man who taught me everything that I ever did. They took her word. And they said, okay, let's go because she said it, so we believe her, so let's go see. And then they experienced Jesus and then all of a sudden they don't need her anymore because they had their own experience. See how that works? Our goal here in this series is to look through the gospel of John, the seven signs. And our goal, back to what, oh, sorry, wrong. That's okay, that's okay. That verse, I'm sorry, I went the wrong way. If I can go back. Sorry, can you get me back to the PowerPoint? I'm sorry, I think I pushed the wrong button. I want to go forward. Back to the verse, or, or, the theme verse for this series, which was John chapter 20, okay? No, if you can scroll to, sorry, I think that's the very beginning. John chapter 20, where John said that these signs, okay, were there so that you might believe and believing, yeah, you'll have life in his name. Oops, yeah. That's, I can take it from there. Thank you, I got it, thank you. We'll just stay right there. I think I, I, I must not have put the verse in there. My hope is that you will listen to the signs And that through believing in these signs, that you will find life in his name. Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. This is the lesson of the wedding of Cana of Galilee, that he came to make all things new. Then he who spoke, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. I came to make all things new, is what Jesus says. He did it with the wine. And his goal is to do that with every single one of us. His goal with us is that we would take the word of John, that we would believe and that we would experience. And then all of a sudden, we would see what the master, remember what the master at the wedding said. 
that you have saved the best to last, that you started with something good, but you ended with something better. The hope is that we would have that same experience, that whatever God did, the old covenant was good, but the new covenant was better. And whatever God has done in one's life has been good, but God wants to do something new. That's why Christ came into this world, that he would give us life and life to the fullness. See, the old covenant taught us how to live, but the new covenant actually gives life. See the difference? The old one, that's the difference between the water and the wine. Jesus took the water, the plain, the ordinary, the good, and he gave wine, the better, the extraordinary, the abundant. And I think he wants to do the same with you. But the question for you is, do you believe? Do you believe? A lot of us think, like I said in the beginning, that something's wrong with us because we don't have faith. Something's wrong with us because we don't believe, we don't believe enough. But what I want to say to you is that God came to do something new in your life. And he invites you today to take a step of faith, but not a step of faith, a blind faith. Not a step of just believe because, you know, the people who believe seem happier than everyone else. A step of faith based on the witness of someone who was there, who touched, who experienced. And then take that step of faith and take that belief and you will see what you will experience as well. And you will see what water God wants to turn into wine in your life. You'll see what new thing he can do inside you. I have a quote here from one of the church fathers, St. Augustine, who lived in the fourth and fifth century. And he writes a commentary on this passage. And he says, let us not therefore wonder that God did it, but love him because he did it in our midst. Speaking about this miracle, let's not wonder why God did this miracle and let's not try to understand why, what water and wine. Let's not, but let us love him because he did it in our midst for the very purpose of our restoration, restoration, our recreation, to make something new, to fix something that was broken, to redeem something that had been corrupted. Let us knock that he may open to us and fill us with the invisible wine. For we were water and he made us wine. He made us wise, for he gave us the wisdom of his faith while well, before we were foolish. Question I want to leave you with. What new thing does God want to do in your life but you're struggling to believe? What new thing does God want to do in your life but you're struggling to believe? What new wine does God want to pour into your marriage? What new wine does God want to pour into your prayer life? What new wine does God want to transform your mind and your thoughts? What new thing does God want to do in your life that you're struggling to believe? And you're struggling to say, well, I, I, I just, I don't have enough faith. I don't know about, I don't know about that, Father. It's just not me. What, look, pay close attention. This, what, this miracle, this first sign, not a miracle, this first sign was done at a wedding. A wedding is a symbol of what? Of union between two people. And especially in the Old Testament, a wedding was a symbol of God and his bride, Israel. And this wedding took place in the city in, in Galilee. Okay, in Cana at Galilee. Galilee is not Jerusalem. Galilee's up high. Galilee is where the Galilee of the Gentiles, where the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. So what he's saying is, is I'm coming to be one. I'm coming, inviting myself into you and inviting you into me. And doesn't matter how far, doesn't matter you're not the religious, doesn't matter you're not the I believe, I believe, I believe, and you struggle to believe. I invite you. I invite you to take a step of faith, not based on faith alone, not blind faith, based on the experience of people who saw and touched and witnessed. And hopefully, that when you do that, you will have your own experience as well. Not because faith is blind, but because faith is based on experience of others, led to faith of others, leads to my faith, leads to my experience. Let's stand together and say a prayer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you 
We thank you, Lord, that you haven't left us alone in this world and told us just to believe for the sake of believe, but you've given us a witness, Lord, so many witnesses in the scriptures and in the history books. We pray, Lord, that you'd help each one of us to take a small step of faith. And when we may struggle and we may be difficult for us, Lord, help us to take a small step of faith and experience that new wine that you want to pour into all of our lives. You came in this world, Lord, to take old and make it new, to take good and make it better, to take things, Lord, that, that are just living and existing and give fullness and abundance of life. And I pray, Lord, that will be true in all of our lives as well. We ask these things in the name of your Son, the prayers of all of your saints. Here, as we pray thankfully, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. In Christ Jesus, our Lord, for thine is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever.